0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Humanitarian AI Today, a podcast series covering humanitarian applications of artificial intelligence. The series is produced by the Humanitarian AI Meetup community, linking local groups in Cambridge, San Francisco, Seattle, New York City, Toronto, Montreal, London, Paris, Berlin, Oslo, Geneva, Zurich, Bangalore, Tel Aviv, and Tokyo. I'm Sarah Spencer, and today we're speaking with Joanna Klandermarva, a Defense Tech Fellow with the Center for European Policy Analysis about the war and escalating humanitarian crisis in Ukraine, hybrid warfare and the challenges and threats humanitarian actors face in the age of AI. Welcome Joanna. Hi, and it's great
1: to be here. I wish it were under better circumstances. I'm sure we all share those sentiments.
0: I want to dig right in, if we can. You recently wrote an article last week with Nathaniel Raymond that laid out three humanitarian crises unfolding in Ukraine at the moment.
1: Could you just talk us through those? Yeah, so I'd like to highlight the article was written two days ago from this recording. So obviously, the situation on the ground has evolved, but we are seeing it move towards these three separate but interconnected crises on the ground. And so first, you have refugees who are fleeing and you're seeing them entering into Moldova, Poland, Romania and then obviously you have civilians stuck in semi to full urban combat you're seeing that in Kharkiv you're seeing it in Kiev itself and then you have the internally displaced persons who are fleeing the fighting but don't necessarily have the means to leave the country or don't wish to leave their home country so for instance the people arriving from Mariupol to Lviv so I think those are the three major crises we're seeing there. Each of these crises require a precise response, but also a nuanced response and and require support from all angles. And so, for instance, you're already seeing quite a significant amount of support pouring out for the refugees arriving in um, the European countries. But we need to start seeing what we can do for those civilians who are trapped in the urban to semi-urban warfare. Um, you know, you're going to start seeing as this moves forward, lack of access to med- medication. You're going to, we've already seen severe damage to civilian infrastructure, the buildings that have been um, hit by the missiles. We've seen the kindergarten attacked I think I was scrolling. I tried to find it just before this interview, but there's reports of an ambulance being targeted. So you're starting to see the complexity of what urban warfare is and what it means for civilians. And that is something that needs to be addressed urgently. And then, yeah, we also need to start building the support infrastructure for the for the internally displaced people. I think part of that article, what we were arguing is, is that if you're looking at the broader context of pushes for a military intervention. Right now we're seeing NATO very uh, hold back on forming any form of response that may be seen as a as an aggressive response to Russia so that they can avoid any form of escalation. That's kind of the argument against the no-fly zone. But as the war moves forward um, and as the Russians start to resort to heavier and heavier fire, we're seeing new weapon systems being moved into the country um, that are more indiscriminate, have, uh, so we're moving away from precision strike to more indiscriminate. And you're seeing it move towards, you know, almost insurgency st- style fighting in, in cities, you're going to see more and more calls for some form of intervention as the humanitarian crisis in ukraine gets worse you'll see more calls for for some form of intervention if you think back to bosnia and herzegovina that really was a turning point for a nato intervention so i think part of that article we wanted to argue is that as much as everybody is focusing on the evolution of the military tactics that are happening we need to be keeping a very close eye on that situation, because it will determine at what point we need a stronger a stronger reaction to actively protect the people. I think what's extremely worrying is also the fact that the US government um, announced that they have intercepted a, a hit list. So we know that should there be occupied territories in Ukraine, that there will be Targeting of individuals who are seen to be in opposition to a Russian occupation, and we need that also needs to be planned into some form of extraction plan, evacuation plan for for individuals, and that may require military evacuation of those people. So the humanitarian element of this this war is so key to the planning that that is going in.
0: Well, there's a lot to pick up in there, and you know I want to come back to some of these issues you've raised around. biggest challenges facing the humanitarian communities, IHL violations and the protection of civilians, as well as sort of the strategic policy decisions being made by NATO members, including the United States and others. But can I pick you up first on um, the new weapon systems that you're seeing and the change of sort of the means and methods of warfare? Because I think that's pretty relevant for humanitarian actors as they you know, seek to understand the operating environment, not only the needs that are on the ground, but trying to understand the methods that parties to conflict are using so it's better to protect humanitarian operations. What are you seeing or what has your analysis revealed in the last couple of days?
1: So it's been an intense an intense couple of days sitting and, and watching and, and trying to get good information and not fall for, you know, what's going on in, in the information space of videos from previous conflicts. So it's been tough. But what it appears, and I think many experts have already said this on many panels and interviews is what we saw at the beginning was um, what would be a surgical strike to try and topple the government in Kiev so that a puppet government can be installed and Putin can have control of Ukraine. I think it was a there are arguments that it was a a deviation from the normal way of fighting for Russia but it was a precision strike like that generally tends to be Cleaner at the beginning for um, civilians because it is not an aim. The aim to rule the country means that you don't want to destroy it because you can't really rule over a destroyed country. It doesn't add to the economy. It it, it basically makes it a bit harder. So that precision strike really aimed to to not severely affect any civilian infrastructure that exists. Not really impact the civilians themselves, and I think that was. The aim at the beginning, it has become very clear that was a miscalculation because the civilians in Ukraine, and it's it's quite admirable if I, I, if I, I might say from the perspective of democracy and fighting for your country, but they're not a la- about to let their government fall. And they're not about to let their country become ruled by another one. And that is where you start to see a threat to the civilians. One, I think we we argued this. In, Nathaniel and I argued this in our, in our article. Is is basically the call to have all civilians protect their city creates a distinction problem, unlike anything we've seen. Urban warfare in and of itself creates a distinction problem, and because of the proximity of military targets near to civilian targets, you, it, there's already a challenge. But now you have civilians. Who are actively creating Molotov cocktails, actively carrying around weapons, so it creates yeah a distinction problem. And as a as a humanitarian group, when you start to try and document violations, the legitimate targets and uh, illegitimate targets, it becomes a, very messy. If I'm if I may say, and as Putin becomes more desperate and as you see the failure of this precision the surgical strike to remove the government you're going to see Russia resort back to what is seen as its normal doctrine which is heavy fire uh, and bombardment and we've seen that um, and 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 the resorting to indiscriminate forms of warfare and but we've seen this with the moving in of more indiscriminate uh, missile systems that are I've seen the word flamethrower used. So this is a more indiscriminate weapon. We've seen there are reports of the dropping of butterfly mines, which is not a new form of technology, but is highly indiscriminate and also long-term creates a humanitarian crisis because demining even after the conflict is going to be a massive challenge. So we're going to be paying the price in civilian casualties for years to come for this. And where it's going from here, I mean, it's difficult. I think we already are in a situation where the humanitarian response internally needs to start. We've seen a good start with the the refugees, but the internal stuff needs to start yesterday. We need to start documenting, but we also need to start planning for how are you going to negotiate access to areas that are occupied? How are you going to position humanitarian actors, how are they going to position themselves so that they can provide the internal response? And this all needs to be happening yesterday. This is a fast moving conflict at the beginning, but it is not one that's going to end soon. I think we're going to be seeing some tension here for weeks, months, perhaps even years. And that needs to be taken into account. And I think if you look at the bell curve, we're going to Because of the positioning and where the Russian forces are occupying, you're going to need a humanitarian response that's spread out and able to serve each of the different areas where the fighting will continue. So
0: you mentioned Molotov cocktails and butterfly mines, amongst others. And what's interesting is, particularly for our listeners who are really interested in some of the tech angles of of this conflict and the hybrid warfare capabilities that perhaps Russia is bringing to bear... I wonder if you could speak to the variety of means and methods that are being used by parties to conflict including Russia in this theatre specifically and the use of technology, both at a sort of tactical and operational level, but also just for the information environment and, you know, commenting a little bit about cyber operations and information operations and how that might impact both humanitarian interventions, but equally how that will shape the way the conflict plays out.
1: Yeah, interesting. There's there's a lot to that question. I think I'd like to start with the, the tactical and operational technological perspective, and then I can comment a bit on the informa- what we're seeing in the information space, tactically and operationally. So I've done research for many years now on the impact of, for instance, artificial intelligence on um, the ability to conduct high intensity combat at the tactical level. I was asked by the Dutch army to look into it and to really look into is it going to affect our ability to really affect the the change in the military balance of power at that level between two opposing armies and specifically for that research I really did look into the U.S. operations in Afghanistan where you had a high-tech army facing a low-tech opposition and what's interesting is that One of the questions that I got when presenting this research in multiple places was, do I really think the future of war is one where we're going to need to insert ground troops into such situations? Because isn't the development of technology going to mean that we don't need to use boots on the ground? And at the time, I argued was that at that point, when the U.S. was going into Afghanistan, there was already this uh, this um, argument going on about the fact that the character of war had changed, and that we were in a time where you're seeing precision strike bombing uh, as the main um, the the main vector for this level and the main one that would be used to achieve your your aim. And it failed. At the beginning of Afghanistan, they tried to take out Al Qaeda using that and get Osama bin Laden and. They were able to the 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 Al Qaeda forces were able to escape this high tech tactical air power by using what is seen as very classic old school methodology of cover and concealment, moving in small groups, and tactics that we've seen since World War One and before. And so, as I've been watching the Ukrainian conflict involved having been somebody who for the last couple years is really focused on the future of war from a technological perspective once again what you're seeing is that perhaps in the build-up so if you think of the bell curve of the conflict in the the build-up to the peak perhaps the technology is going to have quite a significant impact i think in terms of intelligence um, interception some form of Predictive analytics, when you're looking at satellite imagery, you can, you can really see um, troop movements, you can see prepositioning positioning of, of equipment, but when it comes down to conflict, it is a human endeavor and it is between humans. And what you see is that humans are then pay the price and the technology that we've, you know, have been saying is going to juice civilian casualties. It's going to reduce collateral doesn't work when you have a force that can evade it. So what you're seeing in in Kiev, for example, is very one urban warfare, which is the most difficult form of warfare to fight, but also the lack of ability for the precision strikes to have any form of impact in terms of the the ultimate political goal, which is to topple the government without boots on the ground. And those boots on the ground, Are carrying your classic weapons they're having to resort back to classic technologies to have an impact and so for me viewing that i think it is it is a reality check in how we plan for conflict how we discuss what we think the future of humanitarian response is because If we're resorting back to the forms of conflict that have severe impact on civilians and indiscriminate weaponry after precision weaponry fails, humanitarians are going to constantly have to still be planning for responses to that type of warfare. In the information space, so luckily I have um, a couple of colleagues who who speak Russian and, and have access to the Russian information space, and what I find very interesting about that is the information war that is going on alongside the the kinetic war that's going on on the ground is immense it's i mean i've sat for the last three days just all day trying to sift through all the information coming in and you've seen some really amazing uh, live ua map um, some live mapping some open source intelligence analysis but The misinformation that the Russians use is something that I see as, as worrying because it does risk the possibility that at some point humanitarians could become targets, even though it's, they are supposed to not be targets. That's the law. That's the rules. You've seen the Russians resort to, for instance, putting on Ukrainian uniforms, hijacking Ukrainian trucks and so the distinction challenges is that the because the russians control the information space so much for their own troops hopefully i think ukraine is doing a good job of countering that opening the phone line to parents of the russian soldiers so that they can find out if they're prisoners of war in in ukraine and zelensky is doing an amazing job of conducting information war through twitter but We've already seen, as I said earlier, the, the reports of a possible, um, I tried to find the verified source for it, but I, I came across a report that a um, an ambulance had been targeted. We are seeing reports of civilians being pulled out of cars and just being targeted. So I think the risk is that when you have an information space so controlled by a man who clearly is stating false accusations about You know, denazification of a country. um, The risk is that there is also no respect for the humanitarian response. Also, because if you think about one of the aims that you that in warfare is to remove um, general support for the the continuation of the war. So you want to make put pressure on the civilian population as much as possible, so that they pressure their government and pressure the higher ups to. surrender and worryingly if we start seeing reports of hit lists we start seeing reports of for instance an oil refinery being targeted my concern is is that access for humanitarian actors will be denied by Russians as much as possible so to increase the pressure on the civilian population and that could lead to some serious issues cuz humanitarians then may also be targeted to push them out of areas so that there is pressure. And Yeah, for me, it's that's where I see some of the information area going, affecting the huma- ability to respond with humanitarian response. You're talking about a lot of really
0: interesting things there and referencing some both kinetic and, and cyber attacks on critical national infrastructure, how those could be leveraged to encourage, you know, displacement in certain directions or deny access to humanitarian assistance. We could also argue that the ability to do this is is easier, it's cheaper, you know, these tools are more accessible, particularly on the op side of things. The ability to micro target or socially engineer, you know, huge populations is much easier than it was arguably 10 years ago. I just wonder if you could comment as to the sort of readiness or how prepared you think the humanitarian community is to operate in an environment that's so vastly different than perhaps those environments they were responding to 10 years ago.
1: That's a good question. So the question is, do I think they're prepared to?
0: Well, how prepared are they? And have do we, do we feel confident that, you know, within the humanitarian community, from sort of UN secretaries general or assistant secretaries general and downwards, civil society, NGOs, international NGOs, local civil society, how much have have they thought through some of the inherent risks related to the new tools that Russia may bring to this conflict, particularly thinking about you know tools that we haven't necessarily seen where hum- the humanitarian community has been leading massive humanitarian response. so I'm thinking about you know cyber attacks as well as kinetic attacks on critical national infrastructure microtargeting and social engineering, the information operations, as we've already talked about, and Zelensky's response to that. But the sort of this global battle for truth that has been playing out in spaces, you know, related to sort of democracy and the freedom of the press is now really being played out in a conflict setting. And I wonder how much our humanitarian colleagues have paired for this, both in terms of the threat it poses to them, but how the threat it poses to the operations there they'll be leading?
1: Yeah, I think it's a good question. I think we will see. I think we will see how much the humanitarian sector has learned over the last couple of years. I think there have been enough incidences in the last couple of years that have brought this to the attention of the humanitarian sector. And we've seen some good work being done on it in terms of, you know, we've seen ICRC get hacked and i think that really brings the cyber element to the attention of the humanitarian sector if one of the biggest actors couldn't protect its data you know that it serves as a bit of a wake up call i think i think the syrian conflict was a was a major wake up call in terms of of the use of refugees as a weapon i hope they're prepared i think there has been enough incidences and discussion and awareness that has happened. So I've been working in data responsibility for about around eight years now. And, and I have seen a significant increase in the ability of the humanitarian sector to respond to this. I've also been, I started working on digital technologies, emerging technologies with the humanitarian sector and then moved to defense. And I can say that in, in some discussions that I've had, the humanitarians have been further ahead and quicker to adapt to the new ways of fighting when it comes to understanding the risks to, to the people they serve, to the vulnerable communities, faster than I've seen in other sectors. So I do think they're prepared. I just, I, I don't know in an urban context. How one responds, and I think in terms of the information space, I think that one is is a difficult one, especially in the in the light of the humanitarian principle of neutrality. In terms of constantly having to appear neutral on information, you can't be seen as conducting counter arguments towards certain actors. You have to be very neutral, and 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 that is a difficult space to be in because you can't combat the some of the um, attacks that you will receive, I think the main challenge will be the fact that the speed at which the humanitarian sector responds to the different uh, vectors of attacks that we'll be seeing, and the long lasting impact of some of them on the reputational uh, side of it. Urban warfare and and this the peak of the spell curve, everything moves very fast, you're in the fog of war. I think there we have to look at civil-mill cooperation. Um, this is very. I think this this conflict is very indicative of the landscape that we'll be entering. We'll be entering high-intensity kinetic warfare with um, with coupled with high-intensity information warfare, driven by and we know um, in terms of the term AI. It's a very broad umbrella term, but if we're thinking kind of automated algorithms producing news articles the, the production of information by automated technologies is one that is coupled and so you're seeing the the information influencing side of the warfare increase here and i think that is one that i don't know if the humanitarians are prepared to respond to but i do think they are they are preparing it's not to say that it's not to say that they won't be able to in the future it's this For this conflict, it's a difficult situation.
0: There was a colleague of mine who was talking about the fog of war, as you mentioned, and reframing it the fog of information. Because as humanitarians increasingly move into conflicts or places like Ukraine, where both, as you say, kinetic and conventional weaponry and warfare is being waged, coupled with the mass proliferation of information, disinformation, misinformation, et cetera, it is, it is increasingly difficult for them to weed through that. Can we zoom out a bit and, and talk just broadly, pick up on some of the points you've made, but speak broadly about what humanitarian actors could be doing to better prepare for this age of AI, um, or even if whether you think the age of AI is sort of a bubble, heading for a bubble that's about to burst. But are there efforts initiatives, actions the humanitarians should be taking to think more about the rise of new technology and how those are used in conflicts so that they could better prepare themselves? You talked a bit about data as well in in some of your comments. I wonder if you have anything broader to say about that to the humanitarian community.
1: Yeah, I think the number one thing when it comes to the um, impact of something like AI is to be realistic about what it is. I think we're still in a bit of a hype cycle around it. It will have significant impact in certain spaces, but I think understanding um, having the literacy to understand when when the discussion is about something that is a proven applicability of one of the forms of AI because I um, as I always say, AI is an umbrella term for many different forms of technology um, at each with their own aim so i think if you're for instance looking at artificial intelligence for analysis of for instance supply chains you get it for i think some of the military discussion is is uh being able to predict when um more closely predict when certain equipment needs to be replaced so those kinds of information things um i think yes but when we're talking about the discussions around ai doing the targeting and decision to fire upon targets in, in a conflict zone, I think we're still a lot of this is unproven and it's right now still um, kind of hypotheticals we're talking about. We're planning hypotheticals around this. And I so I think what humanitarians can really do to prepare that is is start having the realistic discussions about about the technologies. Um, this is something that i I um, push for in the defence sector as well, in terms of okay, the way in which we approach the technologies is is you we need to be looking at what it is that you aim to do and then and then see whether the technology supports it. And I think the humanitarians, to prepare for these new technologies need to look at need to understand and I think work quite closely with people who are looking at what the future of the conflict zones look like and then look to themselves as to in the light of that what that conflict zone looks like what do we as humanitarians want to be able to do and how do we want to be able to do it and then turn to the technologies and see which ones support that aim in that area when it comes to you know, I think one of the, just earlier we discussed the distinction challenge, um, which is foundational to humanitarian response. I think the reality, that is one for me that needs to be closely looked at in terms of target selection, and humanitarians need to be paying close attention to how they will distinguish themselves in the life of um, automated analyses of uh, conflict zones and how how to make sure they're not being spoofed by by the the people who are fighting to kind of cover themselves as humanitarians and then that basically undermines the entire humanitarian response so i think that is for me something that needs to be closely watched because even if the technologies that the militaries or the the uh, people engaged in the warfare aren't doing it for um automated firing if there's still a human in the loop even if you're looking at automated analysis of satellite imagery in order to make decisions about prepositioning of troops the humanitarians need to be able to very clearly distinguish themselves in that area and that is one that i find very difficult to deal with that for me is the, the most important i think when it comes to data I think there is a lot of work in the humanitarian sector and I am always looking to the humanitarian sector's developments around how to deal with data in, in conflict um, with vulnerable populations because I think they are very far ahead in it from other sectors. And I am always referencing how well the humanitarians are doing their work around how do we collect data, how do we make it interoperable, how do we use the data for... Um, humanitarian response. As a defense person, I'm always in awe at how quickly they're moving, but also in terms of the responsibility to the people of the data. And I think the only risk there is that with the evolution of hacking abilities, the humanitarians are going to need very Mm -hmm. high capabilities when it comes to protecting the data that they're collecting whilst in the field. Because the data that humanitarians are collecting, and this is something that Nathaniel and I have been been arguing for a while, is that you, as a military, you want to watch how the humanitarians are responding because it gives you information about the conflict zone. It gives you information as to where the civilians are, where are the people who, and, and as I said earlier, if part of the aims of conducting warfare is to undermine support for or undermine morale, cutting off access to those civilians, maybe a aim surrounding it. How many civilians are there? And especially, you know, that data becomes valuable to nefarious actors. And so the protection and cybersecurity, of humanitarian data for me is one of the most important aspects that needs to happen. And especially also now when you're looking, for instance, you've had a hit list intercepted in Ukraine by the US government. Who else is going to be targeted should the situation arise that um, Russia is in control or in control of parts of the territory? We all already have seen... Russia's oppressive tendencies towards certain groups, for instance LGBTQ, and if if you're in the humanitarian sphere, also documenting this, and documenting certain aspects of of violations um, conducted by somebody like Russia, it makes the humanitarians a very very big target for cyber attacks. So for me that is key and obviously because of the problem of neutrality when you look at decay who has the strongest cyber protection abilities that may be the military but if you want to maintain neutrality you can't be seen as working together with the military to protect the data so in terms of the requirements for data literacy and digital literacy amongst the humanitarian that has really increased and needs to be prioritized yesterday
0: yeah, I couldn't agree more. I really couldn't agree more. And I think worryingly, I think the baseline for digital and data literacy is actually quite low. Although pockets of the industry are advanced and there is, you know, exceptional expertise in parts of the humanitarian industry. I think if you look at the sort of general baseline across the globe, it's not where it should be. Um, I want to pick up on two things you mentioned. I mean, we were talking about the need for investment in data security against you know, future hacks and attacks. And you referenced the ICRC cyber attack, which they revealed or announced in January 2022. I guess there's a question here about whether the donor community and those who fund humanitarian initiatives are doing enough to make funds available so that humanitarians can secure and procure the highest levels of cybersecurity from private corporations ultimately and we're talking about big tech who provide those you know I won't mention or name drop any of them but there are several big firms that provide very secure cloud-based computing and server security who are sort of very active in the technology for good space so short of you know private corporations offering pro bono or at cost services i wonder if donor governments including the Netherlands or other NATO members trying to trying to make that a priority as part of their humanitarian response.
1: Absolutely. I think you've hit on a topic here that that is very close to my heart. I've been working on it for a couple of years, but it is the nature of public private partnerships as we move into this data driven age of working decision making and and having data driven um, technologies incorporated very closely into all sectors I think one of the biggest challenges we face is what that means for public-private partnerships. And when I say public, I also mean humanitarian, but government as well. And I've been looking exactly into how how does one do that? Because one wants, one has to be able to partner with these organizations. They have some of the best capabilities. And why would you not want the best capabilities provided to people who are humanitarians who are dealing with the most vulnerable people in the world? And in a piece, I think it was 2019, this pandemic has <laughs> really messed with my ability to identify years at the moment. But I, in 2019, I wrote an article with a colleague of mine, Joshua Spearings, on the risks around public-private partnerships, you know, about the operational risks it poses and the technical risks. And I think, and then obviously there's also the reputational risk that comes around because just being seen as partnering with, with them can be enough to jeopardize the operations of of a humanitarian organization and I do think we have not discussed this as much as we should have we have not come up with the necessary solutions and I, I don't think we've had a nuanced discussion on how we can do this effectively and I think that requires governments one putting funding towards that specific area I think um I can speak for myself here, but having tried to find funding for a project specifically focused on how do we do responsible public-private partnerships in the data and tech industry, it was almost impossible to find funding. The only people who wanted to fund my work was the very private actors who... I was trying to critically analyze. And so that creates a bit of a, an objectivity problem when you're a researcher looking into that and coming, trying to come suggest some solutions. So one, put money towards it. That's just, that's the thing. Put it on your agenda, on your funding agenda is for a start, recognize the importance of it and then be willing to fund these humanitarian organizations as they move towards it. I think, you know, it's, it's the, the, the funding is very limited in humanitarian sector. We know that. And so prioritizing different aspects of it um, is difficult, which what do you prioritize when? Um, but I think because there is a, a funding challenge in humanitarian sector and everybody's competing for very little funds, fewer funds than I think the humanitarian sector deserves, you want these private companies and the private sector to be able to do the pro bono work. If they're offering it, it should be something that can be accepted. But it, because of the reputational risks that are involved, because we haven't had the nuanced discussion of how do we do this responsibly and how do we do contracting that is responsible, you know, just the how do we do the contracts? How do we do the technical side? And I think the technical side of these companies coming in to help the humanitarian sector is almost one of the easiest to to address because you can put up the firewalls, you can refuse them to be able to transfer the data, but the reputationally because we aren't having the discussion, you have the hesitation because, you know, you can't be seen as as partnering with them because they also partner with this government who isn't in, you know, isn't exactly conducting themselves according to democratic principles. I don't think we're having that discussion to an adequate level. And if we don't, we're, I mean, the humanitarian sector is going to continue to have the challenge of trying to bring in expertise to their own organizations that can provide the literacy, but then competing with salaries for from the private sector, it's, it's not possible. So for me, the donor community and, and donor governments need to just start funding that discussion, having that discussion, but also... This relates to their own ability to hold those companies accountable outside of partnering with the humanitarian. Because we've seen as you push the pushback on, on companies like Meta and Google in Europe, that accountability, the accountability for the misinformation is part of what the government must, what governments must do in order to make these private uh, organizations somebody that can be partnered with and so that is a discussion that needs to be had there's there's many elements but this is a very an issue very close to my heart and yeah i, I don't see solutions coming fast
0: yeah because yeah. because
1: of the lack of focus
0: yeah another thing to sort of push on there as well is the sort of the delivery models i suppose in a place like ukraine which is middle income and other environments that might be higher resource, or that might have a more vibrant or established civil society network, you know, thinking about the localization agenda for humanitarian agencies, most of these agencies will be providing support through civil society actors in Ukraine and the surrounding region. And I guess, you know, when we think about the deficits that exist for supporting better cybersecurity within the humanitarian community, we can think about Sometimes problematic public or third sector, private sector partnerships, but recognizing that only the largest members of the sort of humanitarian mafia will be able to negotiate those kind of relationships with big tech because they have the cache or the cash or the board members. But if you're a national NGO in Ukraine, for example, you know, you could argue that the cybersecurity risk posed to those agencies as well as to their staff and the people they're supporting are potentially higher since they don't possess the ability to leave the Ukraine. And, you know, not only do we have it's sort of a layered problem, isn't it? Not only do we have the challenges of trying to work out what mechanisms we could establish or roll out to improve cybersecurity for international NGOs and UN agencies, but what does that mean for how they partner and how they can pass on those capabilities? And I'm not sure that are yet there?
1: I can only agree with you on that.
0: Hey, can I add? Um, are you familiar with AIADi, the International Aid Transparency Initiative? The Dutch government is pushing it really hard, but it's like an open data sharing standard for reporting humanitarian aid activities, and it's been around for ten years. And the whole humanitarian community has been sort of working towards reporting aid activities using it. But it seems like these new conflicts are almost killing open data sharing. All of a sudden, it's very dangerous to share open data and i think we need a more layered you know to layer security on open data now
1: yeah i think um i'm not too familiar with eri i know of it but i can talk from the perspective of a weaponization of data when it comes to conflicts Um, and like i was saying you know monitoring the humanitarian sphere is, is very key to the military sphere and that is part of the open data i think for example if Releasing of satellite imagery without scrubbing at first can be such as a big risk to populations on the ground because of it can help military the military operations and so I think the, the when you when you talk about the layered approach to the data security I think what comes to mind and I'm not an expert on this but what comes to mind for me is the Center for Humanitarian Data from Human Archer. Um, And their approach to the data that they collect, where they have the different levels of security that they provide to the data that they receive also, you know, um, within their coding language as well. For me, I have been monitoring that closely as a best practice example of how you can create shared data sets that are usable by different actors but also build in the different levels of security um, so that you are also being very responsible in what you're sharing. And, and I think that is the only way to go in the future. Um, but that also does require quite a close cooperation with, I would say, military actors, so Civmilk partnership here, to be able to identify what forms of data would be useful to military actors and, and build that classification program in a way that um, truly is in line with how military actors would behave in a a conflict field and may use the data. Keeping in mind, of course, that classification, if, if you look to the government side, if you look to military side, classification is one of the major challenges they have at the moment in terms of data sharing. And so making sure not to also step back into those classifications that really are actually detrimental to operating. But I think we have best practices that are there, that are useful. And yeah, it's a given that that needs to be built in as soon as possible.
0: Great. Well, we're coming close to the end of our time together. I wanted to ask a um, slightly open-ended, futuristic question. We like to close our podcast with a bit of a sci-fi question. Thinking about your experience both in the humanitarian sectors and in defence, what sort of futuristic AI application would you love to see and what would you hope it could do?
1: Ooh. <laughs> um so I'm thinking in terms of of what I've been watching over the last couple of days in Ukraine, and once again, stepping into the information space. And I'm not sure if I mentioned it earlier, the article that Nathaniel Raymond and I, we were working on two more articles, and one of them's focused on the challenge that evidence collection is going to pose now when it comes to tracking violations of international law, both just ad bellum and just in bellow for me, I, not a technical expert, but if a technical expert can create this, I'll be very happy, um, is a way of collecting the, the evidence because we have such a deluge of evidence coming out. We've got satellite imagery. We've got communication um, intercepts. You know, call detail records are one of the things that are used for um, prosecution. We've got open source intelligence, social media, legal, medical forensics. You've got ballistic and munition forensics that needs to happen, witness testimonies that need to happen. So that is an immense amount of data that needs to be collected. And even if you do set up, a special tribunal tomorrow, they need to be helped into where they need to go to start collecting witness testimonies, to start building the case against the the individuals who are responsible for these violations. And I think even though we may not necessarily have the methodology for going through the evidence, we need to have it collected and stored somewhere. We need to be archiving what we're seeing on Twitter, the videos, the we need to be keeping it all so that as we go into the prosecution phase, we have it so that it's available. And for me, I, with what little technical expertise I have through working together with the, some of the, the programmers I know, a way of collecting all that into a some, something that we can keep it all. Um, and then that can also help the members of the special tribunal if it gets set up or members of the investigation groups to be able to prioritize where they need to go um, and how soon, so that they can start documenting some of the evidence that's needed for eventual prosecution.
0: That would be amazing.
1: It's <laughs> my dream. I don't know if it's. I don't. If some tech expert can just send me a, a DM on Twitter that this is. If this is a pipe dream, then I, at least I can put it to bed quickly. But I hope it. I hope something like that's possible. <laughs> Well, I think you're right. I think what's
0: interesting about this conflict versus others, or I, I, maybe we should say this conflict and future conflicts as technology evolves, is that the sources of information on IHL violations and the the range of sources, as well as the types of data and information, will start to expand. And using technological tools to help us verify and sift through that, would seem to be a really appropriate response, not least because we've seen how sort of AI-powered systems have been really helpful in sorting through millions of geospatial and remote sensing you know, imagery as well to help improve targeting of both development assistance and humanitarian aid. So as an assistant, an AI-powered assistant to help us sift through that information, I can I can sort of see the benefits of, of that kind of tool. would be amazing. We've reached the end of our time now, but Joanna, I wonder if there's anything you'd like to say to the people of Ukraine or those colleagues, you know, working on that issue and working to help those in need in Ukraine.
1: Yes, I think this is a, I've said this to some people, this is a personal conflict for me. I actually, historically, my family comes from Ukraine. I still have family there who I've luckily had the ability to stay in contact with and they are safe and their children are still Mentally handling it okay. If I could say one thing to the, to the people of Ukraine is, is that I am in awe, absolute awe of their fight that they are putting up to protect democracy, democratic values, European ideals. And we should all take some lessons from this as to what it looks like to truly appreciate democratic principles and the value that they have to individuals and to societies. And we owe them, I think as Europe, a great amount of gratitude for what they're doing right now. And sorry, I'm getting a little bit emotional because this is a bit of a personal thing, but yeah, I'm in I'm an absolute all. I go to sleep every night with the fear And and the hope that Kiev is still standing in the morning and every morning I am in absolute awe as I go through the stories and read what individuals are doing to protect each other, protect their country. And I think I personally, but Europe owes them a great amount of gratitude. And this will go down in history as one of the most incredible fights for democracy.
0: I couldn't have said it better myself. And I think there's plenty of us who share those exact sentiments across the world. Joanna, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. It was an absolute pleasure and it was wonderful to hear your views and thoughts on Ukraine and defense and defense technology and how those are playing out. This brings this edition of Humanitarian AI Today to a close.